The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for March 5th, 2022. We're now a week into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. At the time of this recording, the Russians have captured the Ukrainian port city of Kherson, and a 40-mile-long convoy of military personnel is headed toward the capital city of Kiev. The Ukrainians, however, have remained vigilant and have managed to stymie Russia's progress in their attempt to overtake Ukraine. One of the main security demands Russian President Vladimir Putin made before invading was to bar Ukraine from joining NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from March 2014. The episode features an address by then-NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen about the importance of the transatlantic alliance at a time of heightened tensions in Europe, Ukraine and Russia, and NATO's plans to address what was then an attempt by Russia to annex Crimea. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 21st, 2014. That was Anders Fogh Rasmussen, Secretary General of NATO, speaking at the Brookings Institution on Wednesday. Rasmussen, a former Prime Minister of Denmark, talked about the value of NATO in this time of heightened tensions in Europe. He talked about Russia and Ukraine, and what the alliance is doing about Russia's move into the Crimea, He talked about NATO expansion and why certain Balkan nations still aren't ready to join NATO. He talked about the need for European countries to invest more in defense, and he answered questions from the audience. Introducing Rasmussen is Fiona Hill, Brookings Senior Fellow and Director of the Center on the United States and Europe. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 67, an address from NATO's Secretary General. Ladies and gentlemen, as everyone's getting seated, I'll start with the introduction. Um, I'm Fiona Hill, the director of the Center for the United States and Europe here at the Brookings Institution. And on behalf of myself, Strobe Talbot, uh, the president of the Brookings Institution, and all of our senior fellows and other uh, staff, it's a great honor for us today to be able to host Anders Fogh Rasmussen, the current Secretary General of NATO. Obviously, for everyone in the audience here, we've been very much aware of the momentous events of uh, the last uh, several days and weeks. And when the Secretary General um, announced that he was coming to Washington and asked um, if he could uh, give a presentation here, let's just say this was not quite the agenda of items uh, that all of us were anticipating. But as we know, events uh, in the world change very quickly. 
uh, the Secretary General is very used uh, to uh, this kind of high-pressure environment. And he's very kindly, um, obviously, adjusted uh, some of the remarks that he was going to say today uh, to be in fitting uh, with uh, the uh, recent developments. And, of course, those have been very much on the agenda for his meetings here in Washington, D.C., with senior officials. Now, uh, the Secretary General also has to be on a plane uh, today to get back to Brussels. As you can imagine, there's probably an awful lot of things in his inbox uh, right now. So he has only exactly an hour with us, so we'll have to beg your indulgence and ask you all when the hour is up to stay seated so the Secretary General can get out and make his plane. I don't want to um, somehow interfere with the uh, larger importance of business because he's missed the plane uh, as a result of us um, uh, trying to stop him from getting out of the building. But anyway, I think for this audience... Um, the Secretary-General needs uh, very little introduction, so I'll keep it brief. All of us know he's had an extremely distinguished uh, record in Danish politics, beginning back in the 1970s when, when he was one of the youth leaders of uh, the Danish Liberal Party, then moving up through the party ranks uh, through uh, foreign policy and becoming Prime Minister of Denmark uh, from 2001 to 2009. He took over as NATO Secretary General um, in August of 2009, exactly a year after uh, the war between Russia and Georgia. So let's just say um, his Secretary Generalship, uh, his tenure has now been framed by two major events in uh, the European, uh, broader European security space. The war in Georgia in uh, 2008, which came after the last uh, NATO um, summit in Bucharest in 2008, and now uh, what we're seeing unfolding in Ukraine and Crimea, just on the eve, or at least a few months in advance, of the next uh, NATO summit, which is to take place in the UK in September. So without further ado, but again with great thanks and great appreciation, uh, given uh, the incredible schedule that you're on today, so thank you very much for joining us. We will um, listen uh, with great um, uh, eagerness and interest uh, your speech. And then there will be time, and I'll move. I won't take a moderator's prerogative, I promise. We'll turn right over to um, questions from the floor. So please, when we get ready for that, be prepared to identify yourself and keep uh, questions as short as possible so that we can give the Secretary General as much time um, as we possibly can to be able to answer and be able to engage in uh, a real dialogue with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Fiona, uh, for that generous uh, introduction. Um, and I would also like to thank uh, everyone at Brookings for the excellent job uh, in organizing this uh, event. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a different world than we did less than a month ago. Russia's military aggression uh, in Ukraine is in blatant breach of its international commitments and it is a violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. The annexation of Crimea through a so-called uh, referendum held at gunpoint is illegal and illegitimate. And it undermines all efforts to find a peaceful political solution. This is a wake-up call for the Euro-Atlantic community, for NATO, and for all those committed to a Europe whole, free, and at peace. 
We know that we cannot take our security for granted. We have seen other crises in Europe in the past decades. The Western Balkans in the 1990s, Georgia in 2008. But this is the gravest threat to European security and stability since the end of the Cold War. First, because of its scale, with one of the largest movement of troops for many decades. Second, because of the stakes, the freedom of 45 million people and their right to make their own choice. And third, because this crisis is right on NATO's border. But Ukraine cannot be viewed in isolation. And this crisis is not just about Ukraine. We see what could be called 21st century revisionism. Attempts to turn back the clock, to draw new dividing lines on our map, to monopolize markets, subdue populations, rewrite or simply rip up the international rule book and to use force to solve problems rather than the international mechanisms that we have spent decades to build. We had thought that such behavior had been confined to history. But it's back, and it's dangerous, because it violates international norms of accepted behavior. It exports instability. It reduces the potential to cooperate and build trust. And ultimately, it undermines our security. not just NATO's or Ukraine's security, but also Russia's. If the rules don't apply, if agreements are not honored, certainly Russia also stands to suffer the consequences. Russia was among those who committed in 1994 to respect Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty. Russia pledged not to threaten or use force against Ukraine. By turning its back on that agreement, Russia has called into question its credibility and reliability as an international actor and its steps to annex Crimea are a clear violation of the United Nations Charter. Russia must honor its international commitments, cease all military activities against Ukraine, and seek a peaceful political solution, including through direct dialogue, dialogue 
with the government of Ukraine because on its current course, Russia is choosing increased international isolation. There are no quick and easy ways to stand up to global bullies because our democracies debate, deliberate, and consider the options before taking decisions. Because we value transparency and seek legitimacy for our choices. And because we see force as the last, not the first resort. The only way to address such challenges is for Europe and North America to stand together. This is what we have done from the start of this crisis. NATO's clear position has been to condemn Russia's military actions in Ukraine, to stand firmly in support of the government in Kiev, and to make clear that President Putin's decisions to escalate the situation have consequences. As a first step, we have suspended joint planning for a maritime escort mission for the destruction of serious chemical weapons. This would have been the first joint operation of the NATO-Russia Council. We also decided that no staff-level civilian or military meetings with Russia will take place for now. And we have put the entire range of NATO-Russia cooperation under review. NATO foreign ministers will take decisions when they meet in Brussels early next month. At the same time, we have kept the door open for political dialogue in the NATO-Russia Council to give Russia an opportunity to engage. We have also taken measures to strengthen NATO's readiness. They include more assets for our Baltic air policing mission, surveillance flights over Poland and Romania, and heightened awareness. Allies have taken further steps to impose diplomatic and economic consequences. These are not our preferred choice. They are inevitable and appropriate consequences of Russia's choices. No one wants to turn away from our cooperation with Russia. But no one can ignore that Russia has violated the very principles upon which that cooperation is built. So business, as usual, is not an option. Ladies and gentlemen, in times like this, when the security of the Euro-Atlantic area is challenged, the North Atlantic Alliance has not wavered, and it will not waver. For 65 years, we have been clear 
in our commitment to one another as allies and to the global security system within which NATO is rooted. Our transatlantic foundation is our strength and it has given us the ability to consult, cooperate and cope with any crisis. This does not mean that NATO is the only solution to every crisis in the Euro-Atlantic region. But I do believe it is part of every solution. Because the alliance provides three elements that are crucial for facing modern security challenges and that are vital for Europe's and America's defense. These are political legitimacy, tried and tested structures, and military strength. Now, first, political legitimacy. The combined and voluntary will of 28 of the world's strongest sovereign democracies is an extremely powerful source of political legitimacy. Something that unilateral action or coalitions of the willing simply cannot enjoy. This carries over into our missions and operations. It attracts partners whose political support and military contributions add to our broader international legitimacy. Our ISAF mission in Afghanistan is a clear example. It has included 50 countries, all 28 allies and 22 uh, partner nations. That's one-fourth of all the world's countries. The biggest and most effective coalition in recent history. A coalition that only NATO could have gathered and commanded. And that leads me to my second point. NATO provides tried and tested political and military structures. We have a unique permanent forum for political consultation where North Americans and Europeans meet every day to debate and decide how to ensure our collective security. Just two weeks ago, we met at Poland's request to consult within the framework of Article 4 of the Washington Treaty. This allowed us to immediately address the security concerns of one of our members and to reaffirm our solidarity. Our political and military structures also provide us with a permanent crisis response system so we can react quickly and effectively to any concern with political measures, with military measures or an appropriate mix of the two. We also have the permanent NATO military command structure 
So when we decide to take any military action, we have the right framework with the right skills and the right people already in place. We have headquarters that can be deployed quickly to command operations and missions. We have reaction forces on standby, and we can bring the necessary military contributions together quickly from NATO allies as well as from over 40 partner nations on five continents. Time and again, when an ally has felt its security under threat, we have come together and quickly provided the necessary support. After 9-11, when we deployed surveillance planes here to the United States, during the Syria crisis, when we deployed Patriot missile defense systems to Turkey, and today, uh, when our surveillance aircraft are monitoring our borders in Eastern Europe. Now, imagine that NATO did not exist. Every time a crisis broke out, a political and military framework would have to be built from scratch. Political consensus would have to be forged, partners found, military plans developed, and capabilities designed, delivered, and deployed. This would be costly in terms of effectiveness, in terms of money, and in terms of time. Indeed, once the necessary elements for the response were in place, it could be too late to stem the crisis. So, our standing structures save time, they save effort, and they save taxpayers' money. They bring other advantages too. They allow us to harmonize military requirements across the alliance. They support the equipping, training, and exercising of our troops. And they have helped us to build the most capable and connected military forces in history. And this is my third point, NATO's unique military strength. It is a force multiplier, and it allows every ally, even its most powerful one, to pack a bigger punch. Let me point out a few of the ways that American security has benefited from NATO's collective strength. Again, Afghanistan is a good example. In 2010, as American forces searched, European allies searched, and partners searched too, Over the past 10 years, for every two U.S. soldiers who have served in Afghanistan, one European soldier has always served with them. Some 400,000 
European soldiers have rotated through Afghanistan to help make sure it would never again be a launching pad for international terrorism. In Libya, three years ago, European allies, Canada and NATO partners played a crucial role in enforcing an arms embargo, maintaining a no-fly zone and protecting the people from attacks by their own leader. Today in Kosovo, over 31 NATO European and partner countries are keeping the peace. And off the coast of Somalia, ships from four allied navies, Spain, Turkey, Italy, and the Netherlands, are sailing with US ships, patrolling against pirates, and keeping vital sea lanes safe. European nations are helping to ease America's security burden in other ways too. For example, the European Union is running its own counter-piracy operation. And several European nations have stepped up to respond to the growing instability in Africa, in particular in Mali and Central Africa. So NATO makes a unique contribution to our security because only NATO brings together the world's most capable democracies in a permanent, integrated political and military structure. And only NATO delivers the political legitimacy and military strength that no one nation or ad hoc coalition can deliver on its own. It comes down to a simple truth. Shared security is better than solitary insecurity. And it's cheaper too. It's why NATO is a great defender of America, a great deal for America, and it's why NATO matters too. America. That said, I'm the first to stress that Europe must do more. I take every opportunity to point out that there should be a fairer sharing of the costs and the responsibilities, both between North America and Europe and within Europe. And developments in Ukraine are a stark reminder that security in Europe cannot be taken for granted and that neither Europe nor America can come up with a solution alone. That's why I will continue to remind European nations that they need to step up politically and militarily to hold the line on defense cuts, to increase their defense spending, and to work together to fill key capability gaps, including missile defense, 
cyber defense, and joint intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Later this year, in Wales, in the United Kingdom, we will hold our next NATO summit. We need to take tough decisions in view of the long-term strategic impacts of Russia's aggression on our own security. Our commitment to the security of allies is unbreakable. We will bring our ISAF mission to a close and prepare our future partnership with Afghanistan. We will ensure we have the right capabilities we need to address the modern threats we face, like cyber attacks and missile proliferation. And we will strengthen our partnerships with like-minded countries in our neighborhood and around the world. Our Wales Summit will move us along a path we have paved together to ensure our alliance is even better suited to meet the collective security requirements of every allied nation, including your own, and fit to face any challenge the future may hold. Ladies and gentlemen, as recent events have shown, we continue to face critical security challenges, and new challenges are emerging all the time. An environment where countries decide they can redraw the geopolitical map use the cyber domain to cause harm or attack innocent people because of political and ideological disagreement. We must stand united in the face of all those challenges which make our world more dangerous and unpredictable. Our common history shows us the way. In June, we will commemorate the 17th anniversary of the D-Day landings. I remember my own visit to Normandy together with my family. Seeing the beaches where so many Allied troops, European and American, gave their lives for freedom. Walking past the rows of white headstones that mark those soldiers' graves. Those brave soldiers who stormed the Normandy beaches knew then what we must not forget now, that sharing security today means preserving freedom, democracy, and prosperity for tomorrow. That's the spirit in which NATO was founded. And that's why NATO matters for the United States and for all the allies today and in decades to come. Thank you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, 
Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Uh, Secretary General, thank you so much uh, for those uh, very spirited and uh, important remarks. And it's very much, um, as we open up to the audience here, a time of anniversaries. And as you were speaking there about D-Day, um, of course, at that point in 1944, it wasn't just the Normandy uh, beach landings. It was also the Russians being part of that alliance uh, on the Eastern Front. Um, it's also all of the anniversaries of the siege of Leningrad, of Stalingrad, and of many other issues. So our World War II history was a time that we shared. Unfortunately, it's also about the 160th anniversary of another uh, series of crises in the Crimea. Again, as you were thinking, I started to remember that the Crimean War actually uh, broke out um, around um, 1854, so again, about 160 years ago. And that was also over a miscalculation, a misunderstanding about Russia's interests then in what was the Ottoman Empire and the role of Slavs and the, the Orthodox Christians that ended up, let's just say, with another series of events that led to an all, so not just recriminations, but unfortunately, uh, military action on and around that same uh, peninsula with lots of strange people on different sides. It gave us the balaclava, which we've actually seen out in force with masked men in balaclavas in Crimea on those various outposts. So as Mr. Putin reminded in his speech the other day, history, depending on where you want to pick it up, um, is never uh, very far away. But today you've also said some very important things about the future uh, as well as about the present. And I think that there's going to be a lot of questions about the things that you've said. We have many members here of uh, the uh, diplomatic corps in Washington, D.C., many of our colleagues from other think tanks, which we're very glad to see, students uh, from SICE and uh, other universities uh, close by. We have SICE across the road and many other academics, uh, analysts, and, of course, uh, the members of the press call. So I'd like to hold it open now uh, to the floor. I'll try to take, if it's okay with you, a couple of questions at a time. We've got exactly um, half an hour. So, again, if people could keep uh, those short, and we'll start uh, with this gentleman here at the front. If you could wait until um, a microphone comes to you, please identify yourself, and then the lady uh, behind you. Yeah, uh, Michael Gordon, New York Times. Uh, sir, the uh, United States has sent... Um a dozen F-16s and several hundred service personnel to Poland as a reassurance mission. But if NATO is trying to send a message of resolve, shouldn't the reassurance mission be a NATO-led effort involving multiple countries on land, sea, and air in Poland, the Baltic states, and the Black Sea? And also, uh, Ukraine has been seeking support for its military. Shouldn't NATO consider providing intelligence support, logistical support, and, and advisors to help strengthen the Ukrainian military and deter uh, possible Russian military invention in eastern Ukraine if this is the gravest crisis since the end of the Cold War isn't something more required than suspending a joint maritime operation and stopping staff level meetings. Thank you. Thanks. If the microphone could go to the lady just uh, behind you uh, with the glasses. 
Thank you. Lara Jakes with Associated Press. This is a good segue from Michael's question. You mentioned ongoing mission, NATO missions in Kosovo off the Somali coast and, of course, in Afghanistan. So as NATO now focuses on European security as a result of Russia's aggressions, and in a world of dwindling resources, how will that affect military operations or strategy in other missions, particularly Afghanistan? Thank you. Thank you. Secretary General? To start with, with the latter, um, um, we have the capacity. Does it work? Yeah, now it works. Yes. Um, we have the capacity uh, to deal with uh, uh, several uh, missions and operations uh, at one and the same uh, time. Uh, and uh, ongoing events will not have any uh, impact uh, on um, our engagement uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, we follow uh, the plans as already uh, outlined which means completion of the ISAF combat operation by the end of this year, and provided we get a signature uh, on the security uh, agreements, uh, deployment of a NATO-led training mission from the 1st of January uh, 2015, and there will be no change uh, in, in those uh, plans. Um, on NATO engagement, uh, in, in the current crisis, uh, yes. Uh, if we take um, uh, the, the, the Baltic air policing, uh, the United States uh, took a quick uh, step uh, to augment uh, uh, their contribution uh, to uh, Baltic uh, air policing, which is highly appreciated. Um, the good news is that this initiative will now be followed uh, by other um, NATO allies, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, the UK announced that they will contribute uh, to uh, uh, augmenting uh, or enhancing uh, air policing over the Baltic states, and um, uh, other announcements uh, will follow. Uh, so you're right, it should be, and it is, and it will be uh, a NATO uh, mission. Uh, the same goes for the deployment of uh, AWACS uh, planes over Romania and uh, Poland. Uh, these uh, are uh, part of a NATO uh, operation. Um, uh, but having said that, uh, it, it's normal practice uh, that uh, uh, individual allies can take uh, immediate steps uh, uh, and, and, and then it's followed uh, by a more broad uh, uh, NATO, uh, NATO mission. Um, and I envisage uh, further steps uh, to reassure allies, uh, to strengthen deterrence uh, and uh, collective uh, defense in light of what we have seen. And then uh, on um, Ukraine, which is the second part of your question, uh, we have uh, intensive uh, consultations uh, with the Ukrainians uh, right now. We have had several meetings in the NATO-Ukraine Commission. I have met with the Ukrainian Prime Minister, the Ukrainian uh, Foreign Minister. They have forwarded uh, a number of uh, requests. Uh, we are now looking into those uh, requests, and um, I would expect uh, foreign ministers to take decisions uh, on enhanced partnership, increased uh, assistance uh, to uh, Ukraine when foreign ministers meet on the 1st and 2nd uh, of uh, April. 
uh, I agree uh, that uh, we should step up uh, our um, assistance uh, to uh, Ukraine, and I'm sure it will happen. Thanks. I'm, I'm trying to collect uh, questions. I see hands uh, coming up. Uh, there's um, over here at the front, and then uh, the gentleman here at the aisle. Uh, so if people keep their hands up, I'm trying to keep a, a track, please. Thank you. Natalie Tocci, Istituto Affari Internazionali in Rome. Um, you have explained very effectively, Secretary General, the logic of uh, suspending cooperation under the NATO-Russia Council. Um, how would you respond to two counter-arguments to that? Um, the first being that that cooperation is as much a NATO interest as it is a Russian interest, and the second, perhaps more important counter-argument, that perhaps it is precisely in moments of conflict uh, and disagreement uh, the institutionalized contact between the two sides is most valuable. And uh, the gentleman here at the aisle? Uh, no, just wait one second, next time around. Yeah, thank you. Meto Koloski, United Macedonian Diaspora. This year marks, uh, and first of all, congratulations on your Hillary Clinton Award uh, this morning. Uh, Fiona mentioned a few anniversaries, but uh, this year marks the 100th anniversary of World War I with uh, you know, Sarajevo, and then 15, 10, five years enlargement. You welcomed a delegation from Bosnia, I think, a couple of days ago, and Macedonia's prime minister recently. What kind of message uh, will the upcoming summit send uh, on enlargement, uh, will there be a breakthrough on the Macedonia-Greece dispute, uh, in your opinion, and perhaps a visit uh, to the region if uh, enlargement is not uh, deliverable at the UK summit? Will you visit all the four countries? Because I think we learned the mistakes of Bucharest with Georgia and Ukraine. Luckily, nothing of that sort has happened on Macedonia, but you know, hopefully uh, nothing does happen. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, first, on the NATO-Russia Council, actually, I think we, we struck the right balance in what we have done so far. Uh, because you're right, uh, during a crisis, it is important to keep open a channel for dialogue. So that's why we have suspended practical cooperation uh, with Russia, while uh, we have kept uh, the NATO-Russia Council as such open for dialogue. And actually we have had a meeting already uh, at ambassador's level <clears throat> uh, within the NATO-Russia Council. I can tell you it was not a, pl it was not a pleasant meeting uh, with uh, 28 allies conveying a very clear message uh, to uh, the Russian uh, ambassador. But I think it was a useful uh, meeting. So that underlines your point uh, that during a crisis we need to keep open uh, these uh, channels uh, for uh, dialogue. And that's exactly what we have done. But on the other hand, I also think uh, the Russian behavior must have consequences. I, I mean, when, when I study uh, the founding documents that create the framework for our partnership with Russia, I can see Russia in blatant breach of all the fundamental principles. Um, uh, among those principles, we have stated that we will not use force against each other or any other. Uh, and obviously, they, they did. Um, in um, 2010, at the NATO-Russia summit in Lisbon, we declared that it's our ambition to develop a true strategic partnership between NATO and Russia. I'm, I'm a strongly believer of that. I, basically, I think we share interests. 
But when I witness the current Russian behavior, I ask myself, should Russia be considered a partner or an adversary? I have to ask that question. And uh, many allies ask that question. So that's why uh, we can't continue business uh, as usual. But I think we, we struck the right uh, balance in the way we, we, we dealt with this. And, and we have done it in such a manner that it opens the possibility uh, to, to step up sanctions, so to speak, uh, if the situation warrants uh, that. Now, on... Um, our open-door policy and uh, perspectives of uh, enlargement. We have four, four partners uh, that have declared aspirations to become future uh, NATO members. Uh, Georgia, uh, Montenegro, uh, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, uh, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, as you know, this process is merit-based uh, aspirant countries must fulfill certain criteria before they can uh, join uh, our alliance. We have now agreed internally in NATO on a procedure so that decisions on how we will address the open door uh, policy will not be made now but later in the run-up to the, to the summit. We will update individual assessments of each of the four aspirant countries before foreign ministers meet by the end of June, and then foreign ministers will take decisions uh, by the end of uh, June. So it would be premature to present any assessment uh, as to how uh, we will deal with each of uh, the four aspirant countries. What is clear is that the, the process is merit-based, and each individual aspirant country will be judged upon its own uh, merits. But I think they all realize that they still have work to do. But having said that, I'm clearly... Uh, uh, so my, my position is very clear. I think um, the progress they have made should be appropriately reflected uh, at, at the summit. It, it wouldn't be sufficient just to reiterate what we have said previously uh, on our open-door uh, policy. And, of course, uh, what we have seen from the Russian side may also have uh, an impact uh, on the final uh, decisions on how we will address uh, the open-door policy. And not to be misunderstood, uh, I, I think... Uh, it's uh, essential um, that we provide um, uh, aspirant countries uh, with a clear Euro-Atlantic uh, perspective. Thank you. Um, I have a question here, the gentleman the, um, with the uh, pink red tie, and then this gentleman over here afterwards. Sir. Uh, hi, my name is Janne Bojewski, Voice of America. Mr. Rasmussen, does the situation bring a new sense of urgency for NATO to accelerate with the enlargement process? In February, sitting the situation in Ukraine, 14 congressmen sent a letter to Secretary of State Kerry urging him uh, to support membership 
especially for Macedonia and for Montenegro at this year's summit of NATO. Thank you. Thank you. And this is a gentleman uh, against the wall here. Uh, we need a microphone for purposes of recording, sorry. Sure, sure. Sure. Uh, my name is Vessel de Jong of the Netherlands Public Broadcaster. Mr. Rasmussen, you just mentioned that the, uh, the first joint operation with the Russians to evacuate uh, chemical weapons from Syria will be aborted, will be stopped. Could you be a bit more specific about this? And is it a good idea to do this would be my, my second question. And brief third question. Don't you think now uh, Crimea is finally, well, part of Russia, so to say? Don't you think the situation now will quiet down and should NATO react, well, also in, in those terms, that you see that the Russians are toning down their rhetoric and situation will become a bit more peaceful. But that's probably wishful thinking. But what's your take on this? Okay. <laughs> uh, first, uh, on uh, enlargement, um, you asked me in concrete terms uh, whether um, ongoing events um, would justify it, uh, to accelerate uh, enlargement. Um, let me stress uh, once again, uh, any enlargement process is merit-based. We, we, there is no shortcut uh, to membership uh, of uh, NATO. Uh, applicant countries must fulfill uh, certain uh, criteria. And that's, I mean, for all four aspirant countries, um, the fact is that they do not yet fulfill uh, all uh, necessary uh, uh, criteria. Now, you, you asked specifically about uh, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Already in 2008, we decided at the NATO summit in Bucharest that we are ready to extend an invitation. Uh, to access a negotiation once a mutually satisfactory solution to the name issue has been found. That decision still stands. So once the name issue has been solved, we are ready to start accessing negotiations. Unfortunately, we have not seen any, any progress uh, since uh, 2008, which I strongly uh, regret. Um, uh, and, I mean, f for each country, th there is specific issues, and, and we deal with them individually. Uh, Montenegro, for instance, is a positive story. Uh, the Montenegrins have made a lot of uh, progress, carried through a lot of reforms, but still uh, there is a need for further reforms of their security sector, strengthened uh, efforts against organized crime and corruption. Um, um, Bosnia-Herzegovina. We have uh, gr granted Bosnia-Herzegovina a condition-based membership action plan. It will be activated as soon as the Bosnians carry through some very modest reforms related to defense property. I won't go into details, but just mention that since we did that in 2010, we haven't seen any progress. I, I met uh, yesterday uh, with uh, a member uh, of uh, the presidency of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. He agreed with me, um, uh, but uh, political parties in Bosnia-Herzegovina 
have not been able uh, to, to reach an agreement on this very, very modest uh, requirement. As regards Georgia, we have seen a lot of uh, progress. They have conducted uh, successful parliamentary and presidential uh, elections. They have reformed uh, their uh, defense sector, but there are still things to do within their security sector and also when it comes to their uh, judiciary. So this just to, to stress uh, that uh, certain conditions uh, must be fulfilled uh, and there's no uh, shortcuts and ongoing events will not change that. But of course we all keep in mind strategic implications uh, of uh, the events uh, in uh, Crimea and, and, uh, and uh, Ukraine and faced with a more assertive Russian attitude it is of utmost importance that we, in the Euro-Atlantic organizations, provide partners with a realistic and credible Euro-Atlantic alternative to the Russian pressure. That's my clear position. On the maritime escort uh, mission, as you know, uh, the American vessel Cape Ray uh, will carry out the task to destroy certain chemicals. Um, those chemicals have not been, I mean, they have not left uh, Syria yet, so that's one problem. But we had prepared everything uh, to provide uh, effective protection of Cape Ray during that uh, process. And we had suggested that it could be a joint NATO-Russia escort, maritime escort mission. The first ever. But now we have suspended it. But let me stress, you ask me, is it a good idea? Let me stress, it will not affect the destruction of chemicals. That destruction will still take place. The ship will be appropriately protected, but without Russian participation. That's all. Well, there was a, a final point. Yeah, if, if the situation is not calming down. Ah, yes. Oh. Uh, the, uh, yeah. the wishful sorry, thinking. Sorry, sorry, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I, 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 I think it is wishful uh, thinking in a way uh, because my major concern is um, that um, um, that this won't stop. Um, uh, Crimea is one example, but I see Crimea as an element uh, in in a greater pattern, um, in a more long-term Russian, or at least Putin, uh, strategy. Uh, so, of course, our major concern now is whether he will go beyond Crimea, whether uh, the Russia will intervene uh, in the eastern parts uh, of... Uh, yes. <laughs> and... So, um, we are vigilant. Um, um, we have seen a pattern. Uh, I mean, if you s have a look at the whole region, you see protracted frozen conflicts in Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, now maybe in another form, but still Crimea. I would add to this also 
Karno-Karabakh. And if you look at all this, you will see uh, an overall Russian strategy. It serves their long-term strategic interests uh, to keep instability uh, in, in that region. That can be used, among other things, to prevent countries in that region to seek Euro-Atlantic integration. That's my major concern. Thank you. Um, I fear because we've only got five minutes left that it may be difficult to get to all the questions. There was a cluster of the three people over here, uh, starting with the gentleman with the glasses, the lady behind him, and then the other gentleman. Uh, so the gentleman with the glasses closest to the window first, uh, sorry, and then the lady behind you, and then back to you. Thank you. I'll just try to take the three of you together. Hi, my name is Sahil Shah, and I'm a second-year undergraduate at the uh, George Washington University. My question today is in regards to NATO's nuclear uh, declaratory policy and the prospects for reducing reliance on nuclear weapons in NATO's grander security policy. Um, as obviously from the United States perspective, as long as U.S. tactical weapons remain deployed in Europe, all of NATO has a stake in their security. So how does the debate over NATO nuclear um, policy and non-strategic nuclear weapons deployed both by NATO and Russia um, also fit into September's agenda? Thanks very much. And if you just pass the microphone to the lady behind you. Thank you. Hi, Rachel Oswald, National Journal. My uh, question kind of follows that. There was a recent congressional report that found that the Pentagon's um, time schedule for achieving certain missile defense capabilities in Romania and Poland against respectively medium and intermediate range ballistic missiles could be too optimistic. What are your thoughts on that conclusion? Thanks. And then the uh, gentleman who originally had the, the microphone. Kostantinos Kanalopoulos from American University and the Trezanatic Academy. Um, as the United States and the European Union are negotiating the Trezanatic Trade Investment Partnership, the so-called economic NATO, um, don't you think that it's essential that we have a Trezanatic conversation when it comes to security defense to a greater extent that the EU's delivered in December? And then secondly, um, with the symbolic departure of the last U.S. tank, in April from Europe and the end of the ISAF mission in Afghanistan. Don't you think that it's essential that NATO re-examines its role in the 21st century? Don't you think that the alliance maybe needs to reinvent itself as it did after the end of the Cold War? Thank you very much. Thank you. Yep. Um, interesting questions. First, on our uh, nuclear uh, policy. Um, we adopted an, a new strategic concept uh, in 2010, uh, and also uh, in, 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 in that uh, strategic concept addressed uh, the nuclear uh, uh, question. We declared uh, that we subscribe uh, to the long-term uh, vision uh, of a world uh, without uh, nuclear uh, weapons. Actually, that's not breaking news because uh, most of the countries in the world subscribed to that uh, vision already in 1970 uh, when they uh, signed the non-proliferation uh, treaty. So we all committed to that long-term vision of a world uh, without nuclear weapons. We also declared that we will work hard to create the conditions uh, for fulfilling that, um, uh, that uh, vision. But having said that, we added that as long as nuclear weapons exist, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. Now, 
We have also declared uh, that we are ready to engage in negotiations on a reduction uh, of the number uh, of uh, nuclear uh, weapons, uh, including tactical uh, nuclear uh, weapons. But we have added uh, that it should take place in a balanced manner. And the fact is that since the end of the Cold War, NATO countries have reduced the, the arsenal of uh, nuclear weapons drastically, I emphasize drastically, while we have not seen a similar reduction on the Russian side. So there is a huge stockpile uh, of uh, Russian uh, nuclear uh, weapons and clearly an imbalance. So we shouldn't be naive. So while, while we will work towards uh, a reduction uh, in the number of uh, nuclear weapons, we also need more transparency uh, and we need to reduce in a balanced uh, uh, manner. So that's our clear position. Now, I, of course, I cannot exclude uh, that uh, the events we have witnessed uh, in, um, in Crimea will also have an impact on the thinking about arms control, uh, uh, including uh, nuclear uh, policies. Um, on missile defense, <clears throat> um, according to all information I have got, there won't be any change uh, of the timetable uh, as regards the development uh, of the NATO uh, missile defense system, including the, the establishment of facilities uh, in Romania uh, and Poland. And uh, the timeline is that we intend to, to provide full coverage uh, by uh, 2018, and uh, so far I haven't seen uh, any indications of changes uh, in, in that uh, plan. Um, <clears throat> finally, um, on the, the transatlantic uh, relationship, uh, I agree that the transatlantic uh, trade and investment partnership should actually be seen as what we might call uh, the economic uh, NATO. The interesting thing is that it has been foreseen already in the NATO Treaty Article 2 uh, that we should strengthen economic uh, cooperation uh, uh, within uh, or among uh, allies. And actually, I see the TTIP uh, as an implementation uh, of that um, uh, article. Now, following that, I also agree that um, we need more European contributions uh, to our common uh, security. But actually, I think the European Council meeting in December was uh, a remarkable step uh, forward, uh, among other things, because uh, the European Council focused on European investments uh, in certain capabilities, among them... Um, uh, drones, uh, joint intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, but in specific terms, drones. Also, air-to-air -air refueling, which was one of the lessons learned from our Libya uh, operation. They also mentioned cyber and uh, satellite communication. So, for the first time, actually, uh, the European Council uh, has committed to increased uh, European uh, investments in much-needed 
military capabilities, I consider that a very welcome step uh, forward. But having said that, um, let me reiterate what I said in my introduction today. Um, the Ukraine crisis and what we have seen in Crimea has been a wake-up call and it must be followed by increased European investments in defence if we are to ensure a credible deterrence and collective defence uh, in, in the future. And finally, uh, on um, NATO's role, well, um, daily uh, I witness statements that reflect uh, NATO's success. Um, uh, every day, right now, during this crisis, I see expressions of gratitude among Eastern allies, gratitude that they are actually members uh, of our alliance. I don't think they see uh, a strong need for redefining the role of NATO. They became members of NATO uh, to uh, uh, ensure effective defense and, and protection. They've got it. They're grateful um, uh, uh, for that. Um, as we draw down our operation uh, in Afghanistan, uh, we open new opportunities to actually address emerging security challenges uh, in a much more efficient manner through investments in modern military capabilities, enhanced cyber defense, further development of our uh, NATO uh, missile defense. So there's no uh, need to reinvent or redefine the role uh, of uh, NATO. Our core task remains the same, namely to provide effective uh, defense uh, of our populations and our territories. And actually the most effective defense is a strong and determined deterrence. Um, that has been the essence of NATO since it was established in 1949 and it will remain the core task. Well, Secretary General, that seems a fitting end uh, to um, the time, uh, which has unfortunately run out. We really appreciate you spending this past hour with us. We understand, of course, that you have to uh, move off very quickly. So again, if everyone could stay in their seats until the Secretary General has left. Thank you very much, sir, at this very difficult time for spending an hour with us and being so frank and direct in answering uh, the questions. A round of applause to the Secretary General. Thank you. <laughs> The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks to the folks at the Center on the United States and Europe for audio of this week's event. Our music, as ever, is performed by the estimable Sophia Yan. And once again, we need you to help spread the word about the Lawfare Podcast among the masses. A lot of people out there in the darkness, you can help bring them into the light or bring the light to them. Thanks for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.